0: All right. All right. Uh, Thank you for tuning in to Keep Calm. It's Just a Snake Podcast. Today we have an awesome, awesome guest. Uh, Tried to hit him up a couple different times this year, but we all know how uh, this last year went for everybody. So he is a zookeeper at uh, the Fort Worth Zoo, does amazing work, big, big part of uh, Project Black Python, uh, the Boland's Python book. Certainly in the clouds, amazing guy, Ari Flagel. How you doing, Ari?
1: I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Thank you for uh, having me. I'm actually, I've got to correct you a little bit. I actually am not Uh-oh. at Fort Worth anymore. Oh, I, you're not? Uh, no, I was there for 11 years and I uh, left uh, early this year before the craziness and um, a very good friend of mine um, is building a new zoo project and um, hired me on, so I'm uh, building a new facility for him.
0: Awesome. It It isn't, uh, isn't by any chance the guys from, uh, 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 the DFW, uh, gosh, I'm totally spacing on the name right now. The, uh, DFW Reptarium. Nope. Nope. <laughs> nope? Oh, okay.
1: Nope. Uh, a friend of mine, his name is Quetzal Doyer and he, uh, owns, um, Parque Reptolandia in, uh, Costa Rica. Oh, Okay. And- yeah, and uh, so he's building another facility up here. So I'm going to be running the facility up here um, when uh, he's not here, uh, and uh, eventually he'll be up here full-time with me. So That's
0: awesome. Cool. Well, um, then, awesome. Cool. Uh, well, I mean, let's just kind of get right into it. The same question that cool. you've probably been asked 800,000 times at this point. So how did you get your start in uh, reptiles?
1: Oh, so, well, as a kid – I I mean, obviously, like we, we all were, we were fascinated with dinosaurs. Yep. Uh, and uh, it's the, you know, the closest thing to an extent that we can get. Uh, but I also, you know, I, I've grown up as uh, having asthma. So when I was younger, I couldn't really have like furry pets like most young kids have, you know. So I got, you know, lizards and snakes and that kind of fueled the the fire for the passion that turned into what I do now full time. And basically, it never shuts off, even when my eyes are closed. <laughs>
0: i I get that i know it's constantly thinking about the next thing and what else you can do for sure exactly Um, so um are you keeping stuff right now
1: yeah so um we're maintaining the large collection that we're building for this new reptile public facility. Uh, and okay. we also have, you know, uh, between my uh, fiancé and myself, we have a small uh, personal collection, too. And a lot of those animals we're going to be putting into this facility because it's just going to be so incredible. So it's a better better option for them to be in a larger enclosure and all, everything's going to be super slick. So, Sweet. That's awesome. Yeah. Cool.
0: So, well, then uh, I guess we can just get right into it. Um, I know a lot of these, uh, a lot of the stuff you've, ta- uh, is talked about in Serpents in the Clouds, but, um, so Boland's Pythons, um, yeah. I mean, why'd you get into Bolin's?
1: Uh, so that's a good question. So, um, when I was younger, when I was like in my, I'd say early twenties, I'd say, I think so. Um, obviously you know i was fascinated with reptiles like we all are and mm-hmm. um i started i remember looking in uh one of my favorite books uh living snakes it's an old older book and i remember seeing this incredible photograph of this black iridescent snake in there and i was just like immediately captivated and then i looked as i was looking at it further i noticed there was like less than a paragraph of any information about this animal in this book and uh so then i started researching what i could and you know um, there was and I ran into the same uh issue that I had prior, which was there is no information for this animal uh it 's right. very repetitive, mostly you know. You know, they're black, they come from New Guinea, you know, they eat this, they eat that. And a lot of the information was incorrect at the time. So that just built, you know, this huge fire in me to be like, wow, this is amazing. There's hardly anything known about this animal. You know, it's been, it was discovered in, you know, 1952. And it's like, and now we, and it's, you know, you know, I think it was uh, late 90s when I was working with, I was like, it's late 90s and there's still, you know, hardly anything, you know, known about these animals. I was like, I've got to get uh i gotta get more information and then that just turned into this like addiction and then from that point on it's just been boland's pythons boland's pythons boland's pythons (laughs) i mean i love other species and i do have a lot of other favorite favorites rather but um like but boland's python is that's what i do it's it's my passion so um you know it's it started there and it it hasn't stopped it slowed down this year just because i couldn't leave the country which is a real shame and i've been going crazy not being there because I'm missing I missed the breeding season and we've got there's females that are on eggs now in the wild so these are all things that I'd be you know recording and all my notes and all my research stuff so I, this year has been like kind of you know I hate to say it like thrown out, thrown out but you know I'm doing a lot of stuff uh with this new facility too so it kind of works out where it's kind of keeping me busy also
0: cool so have have you been out there almost every year?
1: Yeah, I, uh, I'm typically there twice a year, and I've been doing this since uh, early 2000s. <clears throat> so I've been going over for 13, 14 years, I, I think. Twice a year? Crazy. Twice a year. Yeah, so I'm there twice a year in the Highlands, uh, and uh, yeah,
0: that's that's absolutely insane. And I know, I know you kind of paid your way for it for a good portion of those. Are you still having to do that?
1: It, you broke up a little bit there. I couldn't hear. You. Oh, sorry.
0: Um, I know you've had to kind of pay your way there, the, at least the first few times. Is that still something that you are having to do that you're still trying to raise funds through Project Black Python? Oh, yeah. Or?
1: yeah, all my. So, Project Black Python is my research project and it's projectblackpython.org. So, people are welcome to go check it out if they want stuff and you can find books oh, yeah. and all that stuff. There and but, um, yeah, so I mean, um, my research is made possible by people with donations. Um, so I work with a lot of grant stuff, I have, uh, fundraisers, um, I have incredibly generous donors, uh, and these are people that I've just met over the years. And and my work is fueled by these people, uh, because it gets really expensive going over there and, you know, I'm a full-time zookeeper, so it's, you know, and also running a facility now, so it's difficult. So, yeah, all, all the help helps um, basically uh, with me getting over there and getting to do this and being able to p- uh, put material out and more data and share more information and everything because everything that I find and and I discover or describe, I share with everybody. I want to make sure everybody gets the opportunity to understand it and, and experience it as well.
0: I know, I know, I know. It's uh, a lot of, I think a, a lot of your research is really kind of, I don't know at this point if it's like the cornerstone of what we know about bullens at this point, but I know it's Uh, uh, it's a good portion of it.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you for that. I mean, it means a lot. Um, I I, (laughs) I will say a lot of the stuff that I have found has really kind of changed a lot of views in my opinion of what we knew before, as well well as what we've done in captivity up to this point. And I think a lot of it has helped other people, uh, move forward with having some success also. Um, and, and that's the, the bottom, bottom goal, you know, the, the main goal rather is to be able to have success in captivity, to be able to sustain healthy populations and alle- alleviate excessive collecting and excessive, you know, uh, issues with animals having to be imported, and, you know, and, and, you know, vice versa and all that. We want to have healthy assurance colonies in, in captivity for these animals. Um, so uh, a lot of that information that I've gotten, I, I feel like that it's helped a lot of people uh, get to this point. So, I mean, they're still not being, you know, bred to the point where it's like, okay, we got this thing down. I mean, we're having a lot more successes, which is great, great, rather. But um, it's uh, it's certainly getting to better, uh, better where it was than before.
0: Awesome, yeah. I know there's been a few more successes out there. Do you know about how many people worldwide have actually managed to captively produce Bolens at this point?
1: Yeah, so that's one of my things. I try to reach out to everybody and anybody that's either touched a, touched a Boland's Python or has a Boland's Python to find out what they're doing, You know, mm-hmm. uh, if they've had successes, if they've had any issues, things like that, because that's all important. It's not just about success. It's also about problems that we're having to deal with, too, with these animals in captivity. A lot of people think, you know, it's just we got to breed them. No, it's, we got to figure out, you know, their every little subtle cork they have and what it's going to end up to eventually will you know, have success. Um, so there is, uh, there are a handful of people over in Europe that have been able to produce them. There's been a couple people that have produced them consecutively. Um, but they're still at the point where I don't really understand what I did to do this, but they're getting better and better to, to kind of open up that. I know a lot of people say what the key is, but I don't really feel like there's a key. I think it's just, you know, we have to really understand these animals on a captive, a captive side, as opposed to the wild, because, Everything I see in the wild is a very completely different animal than captivity. Um, And a lot of that is uh, like learned behavior from the animals when we have them. Um, But there's, uh, so back to the original question. um, So yeah, there's, I would say there's about five or six people close. I'd say about five people uh, over in Europe that have been able to produce um, animals. um, And then the other majority of them uh, is going to be in the U S nothing in Asia yet. Uh, There's been some, close attempts but nothing yet hopefully that changes um but yeah so it's it's still a very small group of individuals that have produced um it's certainly not at a point where we can say we understand their you know reproductive biology and captivity or whatever i know they
0: are definitely like i don't want to say quirky snake but they're just like they're so different than the vast majority of all the other um snakes and kind of a lot of reptiles in general that we kind of just keep um, in captivity, regardless of hobby or on a zoological point.
1: I agree. Yeah. They're very, uh, they're very unique. They have a very small you know niche that's out there and it's like these little micro habitats that they live in. So it's very specific. Um, and they have their routine and even in captivity, they have a routine where it's, they come out, they bask, they go away. That's it. You know, they, they might cruise around a little bit, maybe look for something to eat, but as far as, you know, being super active, that's pretty much what they do. And that's normal in the wild too. They come out, they bass, they go away and that's it. So um, yeah, they have a very specific behavior uh, uh, in the wild. And uh, it it changes a little bit in captivity, like I said, a little bit earlier, but um, for the most part, they're, you know, yeah, they're just incredible animals.
0: They they really are. I know it's just to be able to see one in, in, in even in a zoo setting is just really, really rare. And it's just absolutely amazing to see them. Um, yeah. So when you si- so you 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 do, in fact, go to Papua New Guinea to sit to go up into the highlands. And that's, I think, something that people still don't quite get. It's not, you know, like the regular tropical rainforest where you're finding these things, are you? That's at
1: at pretty high yeah.
0: elevations, right?
1: Yeah. So so I've never been into Papua New Guinea Papua New Guinea is on the eastern portion of the island. Oh, my, okay. all of my okay. research is over in West Papua. So a lot of oh, people right. get and PNG, you know, Papua, but so all my work that I've been doing for 13, 14 years, I can't even remember now, um, is on no. West Papua, but yeah, it's, I'm, I'm very high elevation. It's cold, it's wet, it's not comfortable. It's da- very dangerous. Um, and it's, it's not a, uh, it's not a vacation. That's the thing. A lot of people are always like, can I go with you? Can I go with you? Mike? It's not a vacation. I was like, it's, I mean, I got really, really sick last year. Uh, and I, 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 that was the closest I got to being to the point where I was like, I thought I might not make it out of there. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And that was, uh, I talked about it in the, in the book when I found the baby, when I came up on the baby's hatching, um, which was pretty, absolutely incredible I finally timed it right I've been trying to do this for four years and I finally timed the right window and I was able to be there for the babies hatching in the wild so um, which is incredible yeah it was it was like the it was my moment right there so it's uh but but it came with a price I mean I got really really sick and I was in a little hut in the middle of nowhere and it was just like you know coming in and out of consciousness and sweats and you know freezing and you know teeth chattering and it was it was terrible it was terrible, but oh, I would do it again if I had to <laughs> <laughs> uh
0: yeah, I mean that's where our passions lie it's you you do a lot to yeah. for what you love um exactly. so I know you go into a lot of detail in the book, and um I will absolutely say anyone listening right now please please get this book. it is an amazing amazing book um thank you but kind of really uh, means it, a lot it's great. I I was, I was super bummed when I missed you when I was, uh, when I was
1: down there. I know, in February I know we can, um, well, I might come down in February. I don't know. I'm still kind of shy around people right now just because of all this COVID crap, but oh, okay. uh, yeah. I might be down there just to say hi and I'll be in like a, a giant bubble or something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, well, I, uh, I know you go into a lot more detail in the book about it, but so what's kind of like, what's the process of actually going there i mean once you once you can get the funds from donations and through everything else like what's the process of you leaving leaving the dfw airport to getting there and going yep. in and staying with uh the villagers there and everything else
1: so just, basically uh, i have to it, it's it's about a two days solid travel to it's about oh it's about two days to get to indonesia you know, time change and all that and planes, all Mm -hmm. that stuff. So I get in really late on the second day. um, And then uh, after that, then I have to um, fly from Indonesia. I usually, I mean, I'll be in Jakarta. So I I visit friends that are there. And then from there, uh, it's another eight or nine hours to get to Papua. And then um, from Papua, um, once I'm on Papua, then it's about another hour or so to get to the area that, um, is like my base camp area slash town. And then from there, it's never another several hours to get up to the actual, my site that I'm at. So it's, it's mostly travel to get there. So you're looking at about a good solid three to four days to get where you're going. If there are no hurdles to go through or issues that always present themselves. So,
0: right. Like, uh, um, do you ever have any issues with like the Indonesian government or anything like that with um, no i 'm usually I'm, there I'm, or...
1: no you know knock on wood i 've never had any problems with it, which is good because um, i mean i 'm just out there you know hiking and visiting friends and 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 you know photographing these animals and stuff like that um, uh, so i 'm not i 'm not trying to cause any problems out there and, and you know i 'm very matter of fact with what I do and um You know, it's taken me a long time to get get to know these people that were enough. They trust me to to let me stay in their villages and stuff, too. I mean, if you were right off the plane and you got off there, there's no way in hell that somebody's going to let you come out there. It's going to you know, they're going to either bleed you for all the money you've got or they're just not going to do anything. Um, So it's uh, it's it's taken me a long, long time to finally get these people to trust me. Uh, and then they see me every year, twice a year coming back. So they know that I mean, well, and I, you know, I'm no, they know I'm this crazy white guy that just keeps coming back. So they look Mm -hmm. forward to seeing me. Um, but yeah. And, um, and then getting back is always tricky too. I mean, getting up there, I mean, it's depending on the time of the year, it's just like, you know, the roads are terrible. It's like, you know, I've got to rent a truck and have somebody drive me up there. It's like, it's a lot to get up to these spots. Um, but it's so worth it because, you know, it's what, it's what we love to do. So it's my passion. So it's like, you know, of course it's, I'm, I'm like stir crazy now because I haven't been able to go back. <laughs> right. Totally get that.
0: So, um, I know that, you know, a lot of people when they think, cause it's, you know, when they think Bolin's Python, so the Morelia, so they think it's kind of like a really big carpet Python, but yeah, not
1: at all. No. Yeah. It's, well, they, they switched them over. Um, they they reclassified the whole group and they split them up in with the other scrubs cause they're the closest, mm-hmm. you know, to them. Uh, I think, I believe it was like scale, uh, head scalation and dentition, I think helped, um, place them into Somalia. Uh, so now they're Somalia bow and I, and that was like 2014, uh, yep. where they got classified classified over, but they are typically, you know, they're, they're a member of that scrub complex. Um, they behave a little bit di- more differently than your typical scrub, in my opinion, but, um, that's just maybe cause I'm biased, but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, they're not a big carpet Python by any means. Um, they can be very hardy like a carpet Python. Um, but, um, it's a different animal.
0: All right. And they're, and they're, you know, the needs in the area they come from is so much different too. Like, so when we think about, um, the carpets and green trees or even the scrubs, um, just like the temperature and humidity is different, like on a vastly yeah. different degree. Right.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, to give you an example, I mean, you couldn't put a, a car, like a standard, a, a standard carpet Python. And I don't even like to use a standard one, just like your typical carpet Python in these conditions, prolonged periods, you know, that would be perfectly, you know, fine for Boland's Python. You know, it's like, uh, I mean, last night, my temperature's is down, down into the mid-50s right now, and they've been like that for three weeks, I'd say, and, you know, and they're fine. I mean, they're just like, whatever, you know, but if you put a, a different species like a carpet python into that kind of a scenario, you're going to possibly have issues down the road if you're constantly exposing an animal to high humidity, uh, the damp environment, and those cool temperatures. You're going to have, you know, respiratory infection, like, out the door. Um, but these guys are specifically they are designed for this habitat. This is what they do. And they are incredible at um living in these these little microclimates, which is just an amazing place. That's awesome.
0: So um so once you actually get to these um these little villages that have which is absolutely astounding that you know, the everything about the research and the snake is amazing. But the fact that, you know, you have all these stories of these amazing indigenous peoples that have such a rich and I mean, kind of violent uh history. I mean, they're cannibals, right? Like the I yeah, think a lot some of the these locals-
1: Yeah, a lot of these tribal groups, you know, they they used to be cannibals and that was just the way of life. That was just their there was their belief system, you know. It's like, you know, it's it's what they do. Um But a lot of these, you know, it's like, you know, it's a different view on life that these people have. It's, you know, it's get up in the morning, it's work out in the fields, it's harvest your vegetables, your potatoes, you know, you know, take care of the pigs, you know, and that's it, you know, every day is the same, typically, and then you wander around and walk around and, you know, see other villages and stuff like that, too. But yeah, a lot of these people, you know, used to be, you know, I hate to say dangerous, but, you know they protected their, 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 their lands and their places with, you know, aggression as needed. So these people, Mm -hmm. you know, are not keen to outsiders coming into their area unless you're, you know, they know you.
0: So there was, there was, so when you, when you first go there, when you, when you very first started to, to introduce yourself and to try to build this reoccurring relationship, did you have someone kind of from, um, I can't remember the name of the, the city in West Papua, the kind of like the capital there, do you have well, someone I mean, with you? Um, do you have someone take there? Did they, did they go with you to these villages to kind of start to establish yeah, that bond
1: or trust? Yeah. So I have a very, very close friend of mine who who's Indonesian and he lives in Jakarta and he does a lot of zoo work, um, conservation work. And uh, he introduced me to somebody that was over in Papua when I first went out there. And then him and I just became, came, you know, got closer and closer and closer. And he is like my, my contact and he's my guide, like my personal guide. Um, and, um, and I travel there with him when I'm, when I'm out there, because, you know, he knows the land the best. Um, he speaks different dialects, which is beneficial. And he knows a lot of, he knows a lot of these different areas because it's like, you know, the, you can't just walk to one place and in another, these are the areas are owned by different tribal groups. So you've got the Donnie, which are pretty, you know, pre- prevalent in, in the Baylin Valley area and all that. And then you've got the Yali that are also there and then the Lani, And so you've got, you know, somebody that's Donnie can't go into a Yali area and vice versa. It, you know, that's, it doesn't work that way. So he's not Popwin, which helps him get through these different areas, but he lives there. So he knows a lot of people. And so he's just an invaluable uh uh well he's a close friend he's a family I mean I've got he's got pictures of me of me in his little house you know with his kids and stuff like that and I mean I've seen his children growing up and all that so I've known him for a long time but yeah without him I wouldn't have been able to start this and and, and do this work uh certainly uh not be able to continue going out there
0: that's all that's awesome so um so you when you when you go up there and you are just taking in all sorts of data correct about yeah. the, the 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 elevation the temperatures the weather everything and then yep. all of that goes into like into effect as well as actually looking for the animals themselves
1: exactly yeah so um I'm I'm recording everything and anything because I don't know at what point what might be necessary or what might be needed, or I have a question on it. So I'm literally recording the types of plants I see, the types of rocks I'm seeing. Uh, I tested water last year. Uh, I was checking to see if the water chemistry was different from the area they were at. Uh, I was doing soil soil testing. Um, And then, you know, just Obviously, the the all the measurements and everything that correlate with the animal when I find them, you know, weights and scalation, scale counts, all that things. you know, try to do all that. But I'm trying to gauge everything and anything that could beneficial or benefit us rather in the long run with maintaining these animals successfully in captivity. So um, I'm looking at, you know, wild diet, if I can find it, I'm looking at the mar- local markets to see what types of mammals people are hunting and selling because those are potential food sources for these animals. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I am looking for everything and anything. Uh, I mean, I'm going through scat if I find it, um, all that stuff. I mean, it's, uh, while I'm there, I'm trying to encompass in, in everything and everything I can get.
0: Just to expand that just knowledge base.
1: Exactly. I mean, it's I, I one year, it was pretty incredible. I went up to this nest area and there was, there was a female out and she was basking, which was fantastic. So I got to come up on this big female basking. I was like, just sweating and sweating and just so exhausted. And it's like 67 degrees out and you've got this, this cold sweat going. And I see this and all of a sudden it was just like, everything stopped. I see the snake sitting there and it was just like, oh my God, I was like, this is incredible. And it was just like, I was taking in everything that was around like the position she was laying, you know, what kind of branches were, were she laying on, you know, ridiculous things, but who knows, it could be something, you know, really beneficial. But the real thing was I I looked over and there was like a full skeleton of a Boland's Python, like in close proximity to her. And I was like blown away that there was an animal like that, that that died up in that area so close to a nest, Um, which was super cool. So I took photos of it uh, and, and died and everything like that but it's like everything I'm, every time i'm out there i'm presented with something new or some new kind of sample that i can look at or a new story or somebody brings me an animal and i've never seen one in this area or um or something like that so it's just uh everything and everything man. i'm telling you i'm a bones addict it doesn't get any worse than me <laughs> <laughs> so have you found
0: quite a few uh individuals out there
1: yeah, so my total uh, number of animals I found is fourteen. I think it is fourteen or fifteen animals. I think okay. yeah, not including the babies that I saw that I that I saw hatching, which was pretty incredible. Um, and uh, but yeah, so it, it's uh, we've gotten real good, real good at finding them, which is easy, <laughs> which sounds funny. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, the, the tough part is I've never found a male.
0: Uh, never oh, found a ma- oh, yeah. Uh, yeah which I is inter- oh,
1: sorry, I, I keep cutting you out. Oh, no,
0: you're- <laughs> Um, so I know when I first heard you, I think you were on you were on Joe's podcast um mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, which is where I first heard about you. So and you hadn't found a male then either. So you still, yeah. it's always the nesting, basking females.
1: Yeah, I'm, I, I'm typically going I, I, the area I'm at. I'm finding all the females nesting and basking. So I've recorded 14 nest areas. Um in the amount of time I've been traveling there. Uh, and some of those nest areas are like within 20 feet of another nest. So they're reutilizing these nests, uh, which is really interesting. Um, and, uh, but I've never found a male, uh, one of these years, uh, one of these times I'll, I'll go and and try to search for a male, but it's, it's so hard when I come up on a big female that's sitting in a nest chamber and I'm just like looking at all the chamber and all this stuff and getting temperatures and, uv exposure and you know the position of how the sun is to the nest and all you know it's like stuff like that but one of these days i'll find a male he'll find me probably
0: <laughs> so are you finding the, the same animals every time yeah. you're going up your it's it's the same there. do they ever move from nest site well, to nest site or so
1: for the i i found about for the most part i'm finding all the same animals or uh or animals in that same area also okay but um this next trip, I'll be going to. I was supposed to do it already, but obviously, I couldn't travel. I'll be going to a brand new area that I've never been to. That's, you know, a few hours away from my normal spot, um, and I'm going to start looking over there too to kind of start branching out to see how far the range I can, you know, keep following and see if I can, you know, just more info, more data, uh, you know, more observations and, and things. So
0: it's crazy. So I guess that. In- that kind of that, that really close proximity kind of does explain that, you know, full skeleton next to that other basket yeah. female. They're just So bizarre.
1: It was so bizarre. I was like, wow, I was blown away. I never never thought I'd find a skeleton. I mean, let alone.
0: That is so that is so crazy. So they it, it's um so I'm just trying to figure out how to how to move on from here. It's just so weird. Like I would never have thought that's like so it's so different than what you would normally I guess document with snake behavior kind of
1: right. anywhere else yeah um, it was it was just a, I mean it was a really surreal thing I mean to find it it was uh, I mean it was really cool <laughs> and uh, I mean they're, pre- they're the predominant predator out there they're top of the food chain so it's like you know uh, I mean there's some you know larger like New Guinea eagle and all of that stuff and then you know mm-hmm. pe- people are the only other thing that's going to eat them but that's a rarity not many people eat them anymore uh, in the area so um, but, uh, I mean, the further you go out, they probably would, but yeah, it was just a really odd thing to find. I was blown away. And then, I mean, I found old eggshells and things like that as well. in old nests, uh, I found, uh, I found a female, I found two females actually, um, sitting on eggs on top of a few old eggshells from the prior season. That was really cool. Um, okay.
0: So yeah, that's yeah. really interesting.
1: Yeah. So, it was uh, pretty neat.
0: so when you, there, when you said they're basically kind of like the apex predators, at least terrestrial predators. So, yeah, is their prey base just kind of anything, everything? Are they generalists or do they go for specific? <laughs> so
1: they feed. They they seem to feed predominantly off uh, the couscous, which is uh, a small little. It looks kind of like a North American opossum, basically mm-hmm. it's New Guinea's version of it, uh, and they're really really stinking cute too. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, they feed mostly off of those, which are a decent sized prey item. Um, but they also feed off of, um, small birds, like ground birds that are there. I've heard they've eaten lorries as well from the locals. They've told me, but I've never seen one in person. Um, you know, and there are, some, you know, ground rodents too. So they're feeding off of those as well. Um, and then also, um, you know, the, the babies, uh, are like a whole other thing as far as like being able to find a baby. I've never found a young animal at all. Um. Because, I mean, obviously, they're, they just disappear into that, that vegetation and they're gone. But uh, I found, like, small little tiny, um, uh, tr- uh, small little uh, terrestrial frogs. And I found some small ground skinks as well. So I assume that those, the babies are feeding off of those right off the bat. Um, uh, and then, you know, little tiny birds during certain times of the year so. But, yeah, I mean, they, for the most part, they stick to what they feed off of that's up there. Um, but, uh, I mean, I'm sure they would eat something random if it came by, as long as it kind of smelt similar, I would say, you know.
0: Okay. So are they arboreal at all? I know they're usually found down in kind of yeah. den and nesting sites. Do you
1: ever find yeah, them? They'll, climb. they'll certainly climb. I wouldn't okay. call them an arboreal snake when you compare it to like a green tree python or, no. or, or, you know, uh, one of the larger scrub pythons that are found in a arboreal more arboreal setting but they certainly will climb if they are given the option they will climb um i think the babies have more of a tendency to be arboreal just because it gets them off the ground from like rodents or uh, any other smaller predators that might go for them um so it's just kind of a safer thing for them but i wouldn't say they're arboreal by any means but they certainly will climb if given the chance
0: Okay. I was actually going to, I was, I was going to wonder, like, do you think males are, they're up in the canopy more or.
1: Well, is see, the, I mean? weird thing, the environment is like, you're at the top, you know, there's not much to go up any higher. And um, they're just, I mean, like I said, they'll climb, but they're not going to go out of their way to spend extended periods of time right. in a tree. Uh, I've got a photo from, from my guide who took a photo of one that was up in a tree basking. And it was like, you know, just like in some like heavy, heavy brush, I would say it wasn't like a tree tree. It was kind of like a small wispy kind of tree that's out there. So and it was out there just basking, but it, but it typically that's, that's not a typical thing for their behavior in the wild. Um uh, It's going to be more or less an observed thing in captivity. It's like, oh, I saw them up in the tree. I gave them a tree. So they climbed it. Well, yeah, you're going to give a snake a tree. It's going to climb, you know?
0: Okay. I was just wondering, cause I know it seems like they're one of the one of the species that basking and they need that UVB certainly yeah. more than a lot of other species of snakes. So I was wondering if they would utilize up that to, you know,
1: Oh, they certainly. Basking spots or, yeah. They, they certainly would if they needed the opportunity, but you're not going to find them in the trees as opposed to you are on the ground. I mean.
0: Okay. Makes yeah. sense. There, yeah. That's definitely one of those things that's vastly different than scrubs or anything yeah. like that.
1: Yeah, exactly
0: um so i know you mentioned that um you know the the villagers sometimes used to eat snakes is that like what's the kind of relationship they have with uh with the bolins there anymore
1: so i mean so obviously everybody knows what it is out there um it's a an animal that's recognized it's got you know a dozen or a dozen plus local names uh Mm. so it's a it's a known animal um there's all it's also in the folklore too with different tribes you know they see the animal as you know like a bringer of bad news a bringer of good news you know you know you see one it's a creation myth kind of kind of that their sort of scenario but um you know in, in some places they do feed off of them uh, i mean i don't blame them uh you know they're up op- the the natives that are out there are opportunistic so if they come right. across something like that, you know they might eat it but Ninety percent of the time, they stay away from the animals as a food source. Um, a lot of the locals are afraid of snakes, so they're not going to bother with it. Even though it's, they know it, it's there and it's not going to hurt them. They kind of respect it, leave it alone. It's kind of like one of those things. But um, I do know some places that do still feed, uh, still eat them, um, but not as much as they used to.
0: I know they're, they're, you know, they can be a pretty substantial sized animal too.
1: Yeah, um. yeah, definitely talking to like a nine to ten foot animal i mean so it's, yeah you know if they're out there i mean have at it i mean it's you, you gotta survive so
0: so i know that they're, they're kind of more at the at the higher elevations do they are at, or do they mostly kind of look for, i don't i don't want to use the word forage that's not like the correct word but is it mostly kind of at the lower elevations where there's other species of reptile that are a little bit more prevalent like um yeah like i think there, there are green, there are green trees down the lower elevations in West Papua. Too, yeah. Um,
1: I've never found a con, I've never found any other snakes where I found a Bollens python. They're always down lower in my experience. Not to say that they're not, I just have never seen one up that high. I've never seen a scrub up that high. Um, I have seen scrubs in Wilmina, um, but I've never seen one in a habitat with a Bollens python. So I can't say they're up there that height. They could be, but I've never seen one personally. Um, but um yeah. Um, the locals, uh, they're at a little bit lower elevation. There's like death adders. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, there, there's an abundance of, you know, of snake life there uh, in lower elevations, just not up that high that I've encountered. So
0: look, okay, I guess that makes sense considering, you know, like you said, like extended periods at what would be considered detrimental environment for them, for their health. Maybe it's just like a different time of year is yeah the conditions would be more conducive for some of those other i guess more tropical species yeah. of snake.
1: yeah exactly yeah um i mean it just gets so it's the, the thing with it there's just gets it gets so cold at night and it's so wet so you've right. got two you got two factors that are really going to play against you uh when you're a when you're a reptile you know you know, you know, moisture and, and cold temperatures. So those don't really work well together, you know? Exactly. So, uh, so it's hard finding anything really, you know, that size, I would comfortably say that they're the largest, you know, r- the snake that's up there uh, by by all means. Um, but, uh, I mean, but they're perfectly suited for it. They're, they're engineered and designed to, to, you know, maintain, sustain themselves in this habitat.
0: So when I know we've talked about it a little bit, so what are the actual, like temps and humidity that that are at those elevations where these animals are being found like what's the temperature kind of gradient that you would see during like typically when they're out and about or even just high and low day and night times?
1: so uh, the the coldest temperature i've ever recorded was 49 degrees one morning that's
0: um, pretty cold for a reptile
1: yeah you also have to consider though the snake was not outside in that the snakes are tucked True. away down to the nest um and but on average, I'm finding snakes that are out at that low of uh, that mid 60 degree range um, and humidity like 60 to 80 percent most of the time. Um, even in the rainy season, it goes up more. But, you know, and and then they're you know, they bask for a couple hours and then they're gone. You know, the nice. cloud cover comes over and takes everything away and they pretty much are gone. So, uh, you know, like I said, the lowest ever recorded is 49 on average you're looking at the low sixties, upper fifties, uh, in areas, uh, and then real high humidity.
0: Cool. So I know that what you're doing is all in all research of them. You're not collecting animals. It's all, you're just, you're researching, you're documenting, you're, you're gaining knowledge, but I know that there are some, some farms, uh, there that do collect. Is that still a, is that gone down at all in the past couple of years or
1: is yeah, there the, the only thing I collect is data and photos. Yes. Uh, I, I've been asked that, uh, by a lot of people. If I go out there, or if my, if my trips are collecting trips and it's absolutely not, not the case. Uh, no way. <laughs> um, there are farms out there. There are, uh, people that do collect them like locals, mm-hmm. uh, because it's seen as a commodity. I mean, they can make money off of it, you know? Right. Uh, you know, social media is, is super cool, but a lot of a lot of things with social media are terrible. And one of these yeah. things is, you know, a lot of these people over there have social media in some of these towns, and they can go to these reptile places, and they can see people are selling a Bones Python for thousands of dollars. And they're like, what? It's like, I know where those are. So obviously, they're going to want to go get them and, and try to sell them. Because, you know, these people are lucky to have 50 bucks a month. So, you know... Right. I, I can't say that I blame them, uh, because they have to take care of their families. They have to take, you know, they have to feed themselves, uh, and sadly, a lot of these people don't have any income. So this is, you know, how a lot of that transpires. Um, so it does happen still, and you know, and that's one of my big, my big pushes for you know captive conservation as well, because this is how we're going to get sustainable, um, you know, populations in captivity by. You know, by working together and trying to figure out uh, ways to alleviate excessive collecting of animals uh, in importation of them coming in, because, you know, we we have enough animals in captivity, in my opinion, we should be able to produce these animals. We just have to figure out the right way to do it. And then we can go from there.
0: Which is why what you're doing is so important, considering how different this animal is than what we've known for the last 30 years
1: about most reptile keeping and breeding. Um, Exactly. Yeah. So I'm um, hoping to put together as much data and uh, just as much information, as many photographs, as many scenarios that I can put out there for people to say, hey, there it is right there. That's what we need to do. You know, and and that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to basically bring awareness to the people I'm dealing with over in the field. And Mm -hmm. that way they're aware of how important it is to maintain these animals where they're at to try to leave them alone if we can and allow me to keep returning to be able to gather as much information as possible to relate it to captive conditions for facilities in you know, institutions and whatnot.
0: Um, Have you noticed, like, is there any sort of decline or increase on the amount of imports or exports? I mean, it's it's so far above me that I haven't really monitored that at all.
1: You know, there's several hundred of them that are, you know, that are uh, imported a year. I would say. So, I mean, there's there's healthy populations of them in the wild, and to be able to say that, I don't think bones pythons are rare. Mm-hmm. You're not looking in the right place where they're at. Just that's it. Yeah, they they have a very special niche, and you have to be in the right place to look for them, and that's where you find them. What my concern is, our biggest issue is not them being collected our biggest issue is habitat loss and that is a reality um, because for there you there's no reality of telling somebody oh you would be able to collect all the bones pythons in the wild it's just not going to happen it's so vast so unexplored there's populations there's places where nobody has been so there are safe places for these animals the thing though that we have to really worry about is all this mining that's going on over there all the habitat loss also that's accompanying that and that is so detrimental and just devastating to these animals and not just bones by everything out there, the people, the birds, the plants, everything, because, you know, they're finding all these precious metals like copper and gold and silver and they'll bulldoze a whole mountain. And every time I go by, I see a new mountain just torn down every time. And I just think to myself, what animals we could have, what animals we lost that we could have potentially saved by not allowing this habitat loss out there. Right.
0: Ugh, man, that's, that I that was going to actually bring up that nexus yes. with habitat loss is the biggest thing for any and all wild population. Um, is that, was that a huge issue facing them right now? And yeah, yeah. kind of like yeah. everything.
1: Every year I'm back, you know, I, I see change. I mean, it, it just human nature is how we grow. You know, we're, we're a plague <laughs> in, in in a sense, you know? Um, and, they just keep, you know, pushing the mountains further, 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 further and back. So it's these areas, you know, are, you know, they just get devastated and there's no way for them to recoup because, you know, they're, you know, taking everything there. And that's our, that's our biggest threat from these animals or for uh, threat towards these animals is habitat loss and, you know, and, and mining and everything. I mean, obviously over collecting and, and stuff like that does take its toll. Uh, however, the biggest thing is these have the habitat loss and the, uh, encroachment on these areas yeah that's
0: what we're seeing all over the place unfortunately
1: yeah it's um, not just any it's all over the world i mean and that's just the reality
0: which is why you know this is so important for captive population breeding um yeah have yeah. there been uh any success in like in the zoological stand i know a lot of the bolan reproduction has been in, essentially in private Yeah. Hand. Like, I know, I think Frederick, he's probably, what, the, the most, five. he's probably been the most successful?
1: Five times. Yeah. Wow. Really? Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, five times. And, and I was talking to him earlier today, actually, and, and he, still, he still is not convinced on what the trigger is. He knows what he does and what he does, what he has done has worked. However, he had, last year, he didn't have any success and he did the same exact thing he did. So hmm. he doesn't know. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, he's had the most success with these animals in re- on a reproductive aspect. Um, and he's a great friend of mine. I mean, it's just, uh, he's just, he's a wealth of knowledge and, uh, um, uh, very, very, uh, accommodating with sharing information. And that's what it should be about. That's what the industry should be about, uh, um, right. what we're doing because there's things, I mean, we're, we're way past a monetary thing. Now we need to be able to sustain animals because it's, it'll only be a matter of time before we can't have them legally, or we can't have them because there are none left. Exactly. Um, Yeah. But um, to to answer your question also, so there have, there has never been a uh, captive success uh, with reproduction resulting in eggs and viable op, and viable eggs uh, in an AZA institution. It's always been a private sector. so with that being said, uh, you know, working in, in the zoo, commu- uh, zoo field, AZA, for over 11 years, a lot of that is because a lot of it is very controlled. Um, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of micromanagement goes on. And I'm not trying to bash the, bash the AZA or the, in, you know, zoological community. It's just it's a very controlled setting um, where in private in the private hands. um a lot of us will see something. Be like, this isn't working, and we can change it without it, without having to report to somebody above us to change it or to right. do something. Go through a whole list of a you know a board of directors or whatever. Or not you see something, you change it, you do it, um, and, and that's that's how we're we're able to have success with you know in captivity because these privates are, are, are doing it that way.
0: So, and I know out of the the literal handful of people that have managed to reproduce these things successfully they all keep them a little bit differently too, don't they?
1: Yeah. It's, it's kind of all over for the, I mean, there's, there's similarities, but they're different. Right. Um, myself, I'm trying, I, I try to go as natural as possible. Uh, hmm. You know, I've got very naturalistic enclosures. Um, I have, you know, uh, my temperatures I'm trying to replicate as close as I can. My humidity I'm trying to replicate as close as I can. And then you have somebody that does it completely opposite in a very simplistic you know, newspaper cage and they have success. Um, so it's a very interesting scenario. Uh, getting bulls to breed. I mean, I had a lockup this afternoon. Um, so, I mean, getting them to breed is not hard. Bulls pythons like to copulate or males <laughs> like to copulate. Um, getting females to ovulate and go that extra distance is the issue. And there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, providing what they want and, 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 you know, and there's been some success with that mentality. Uh, so hopefully, we'll see more and more of that. You know, presenting itself. I have a feeling we'll start to we'll see some some more success this coming uh, year. I'm, I'm hoping. Fingers crossed.
0: Cool. That's really really cool. It's just always it's always been like you know that unicorn for everybody in the hobby. Yeah. So it's just I was wondering
1: regardless of being able to reproduce them or not they're just absolutely amazing animals to, to interact with and observe uh, but ultimately we want to be able to reproduce them to be able to sustain these populations you know um, right. and and I hope to be I hope to be able to do it once I would just like the opportunity to do it once uh, to you know to say I was able to reproduce them one time and if it happens it happens if it doesn't it doesn't and I can accept that uh, right but I, I will not stop trying and i will never stop working with these animals because of that uh, it's just i was i was put here to work with both pythons that's the way i
0: look nice uh how many years have you been uh have you been really attempting to reproduce them
1: uh i would say the last eight years i've been I, i've been pushing uh harder to really work with them i mean I, i've got a decent group of animals um that I've been working with um, and uh, which help, you know, greater numbers obviously are, or, help, you know, help out a lot. Um, but um, you know, I'd say probably the last eight years I've been really, really pushing it, really trying to relate what I've been observing in the wild and how to get it into a captive setting. Also talking with everybody and anybody getting, you know, opinions and ideas and, and not just with Python people, you know, I'm talking to monitor guys. I'm talking to, tortoise guys i mean because there could be some little thing i'm overlooking you know that could be you know beneficial on an aspect of caring for something else that might correlate to what we're doing with these guys because um, it almost seems like their
0: behavior is similar to like lizard or tortoise behavior versus a lot of other like bow and snakes exactly yeah yeah exactly so crazy um, <laughs> i don't know it's just so weird that it's they're just such a cool animal that's just so different that yeah, they're don't very... know a
1: whole lot about. Yeah. The best way to put it is they're just different. You know, it's, you know. Right.
0: I almost feel like it's a small little mirror kind of reflecting the hobby a little bit while, well, like, we've known about it for a little while, but not a whole lot. We've really only gotten started, like, keeping reptiles in the last, like, truly, like, expanding culture in the last, like, 20 years. Yeah. And then, you know, with Bolin's. 1952 they're discovered 40 years went by before any real research yeah. or yeah. efforts to produce them captively happened
1: yeah the only downside i mean bolens also go through like they go through a phase the bolens phase where <laughs> popular animals starts you know building up and everybody wants to get a bolens python because they want to be able to one to do it and they want to be able to reproduce it and make a million dollars and i'm like You're not going to make a million dollars from breeding bulls, pythons, you know, it's like, and and sadly they've, I mean, in my opinion, they're worth a million dollars because they're what I absolutely love. And I look at them as absolutely incredible animals, you know, but they, they get associated with a high monetary value because of what they, what they are. And because they're not commonly reproduced. And sadly that turns around and bites, bites bites us in the ass. Um, And and, uh, unfortunately it shouldn't be about that. However, you know it happens human nature exactly human nature we're our own worst enemy so uh,
0: that's no better way to put it than that um yeah so meh.
1: um
0: well with that being said um are you able to kind of expound a little bit about what you are going to be working on with your new venture of setting up your uh
1: this new facility yeah so this uh this uh oh we're we're hoping to be open in the beginning this coming year march april i hope you know give give or take um it's a uh, a three building a facility currently uh there's a, a area with you know quarantine rooms large gift shop a huge museum educational area um then it's got a two-story tropical building um and a large temperate building as well right now uh obviously we'll we're going to plan to expand uh, probably in the next couple of years uh, with some, you know, some more buildings too. Um, But uh, the collection is going to be, you know, just incredible species, not, not the, not things that are necessarily the rarest, Mm -hmm. but animals that are displayed correctly, animals that are behaving correctly, uh, correctly, and a lot of mixed species. So we can see these animals interact daily and see observations that we wouldn't normally do. So we're, we're focusing heavily on, the animals, you know, mm. and, and education, uh, correct education. Um, it's it's going to be incredible. It's going to be a really, really special place. And it'll be a destination place uh, where we'll be set up for symposium stuff and, you know, educational awesome. areas. So.
0: You're making you're, – you're convincing me to move down there at this point.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Uh,
0: so, I mean, is it um, mostly indoor facilities? Are you going to have – eventually expound out to kind of like maybe indoor outdoor areas so that way they have kind of access to
1: yeah so we have
0: conditions.
1: currently everything is indoor we do have outdoor access for several species so they'll be able to go outside when the weather's nice um and uh eventually we'd like to do a uh, a large crocodilian thing that's going to be outdoors um but uh for the most part it's going to be all indoor uh with a little bit of outdoor stuff so uh like i said okay. mostly it's going uh, but it's going to be really, it's just going to be fantastic. I mean, a, a lot of really, a lot of really great species we're working with that not necessarily are the rarest in the world, but they're just going to mm-hmm. be, you know, they're going to be sh- displayed how they should be shown. And, and, you know, and we hope to do, you know, a lot of conservation work with, uh, you know, with various institutions and organizations uh, and all that. So. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Where exactly is that going to be? Uh- so we're, 40 miles or, or not 40 miles. We're about, well, yeah, about 40 miles, 40 minutes or so uh, outside of Austin. Oh, okay. And, uh, so a
0: little bit further yeah. South.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And we're in the hill country, which is absolutely gorgeous. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we're going to be out in this area out here. Um, and, uh, like I say, uh, we'll probably be opened up, you know, give or take March, April. I'm, I'm fingers crossed hoping, uh, right. uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be pretty impressive. Uh, obviously we're going to, we have a big bowl and this enclosure, of course. Um <laughs> uh,
0: Go figure.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. Go figure. Right. Uh, you know, but a lot of water, a lot of, you know, a lot of movement, things like that. We're going to have a lot of that stuff. We want it to be real interactive for people so they can, you know, really enjoy everything. It's not just going to be looking at one big snake in the enclosure. There's going to be small little frogs and little lizards and fish and crayfish and, you know, all sorts of things that are going to be interactive and people can be able to, to see how it, how it responds naturally, you know. That's so
0: cool. Like that's, yeah. I, that's definitely something that, I would like to see more in a lot of places instead of just here's this one enclosure. And while it is set up immaculately and it gives a lot of things that you would maybe be able to see that replicate the wild, but not multi-species inhabiting different areas that won't necessarily eat each other, but would be found in the same areas that would in fact interact on a daily basis.
1: Yeah. Exactly, we have a really cool uh, European enclosure with European pond turtles in it, and uh, the uh, Timon uh, Timon Lipida. The uh, I always forget the green lizards and the uh, uh right. Pusic, which are the legless giant legless lizards. And um, we've got like Italian wall lizards. So it's going to be like a lot of really cool interacting species that would be in the same habitat together. And our exhibits are huge, so they're going to be able to not be like it's not going to be like inside an elevator these there's going to be lots and lots of space for these animals to just do what they do so it's going to be really exciting to see all the interaction and just everything
0: um i know not everybody's been there but it kind of it sounds like you're kind of almost describing like the the water dragon exhibit at the fort worth zoo where it's that huge huge wall where it's i think it's a water was it a water dragon or self and dragon
1: might have been the uh, we, 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 there was a sailfin dragon. There was also caiman lizards as well. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's a huge enclosure that's similar to that, okay. uh, that kind of a style that feel to it. So it's going to be like aquatic and dry land. So it'll be encompassing both, you know, terrestrial, aquatic, arboreal, things like that too. So
0: that's just really cool. Um, do you, have you guys decided on a name for it already? I don't know if uh, you might have said it.
1: Uh, Reptilandia
0: reptile lagoon Reptilandia Reptilandia reptile lagoon
1: yeah
0: cool that's
1: really cool yeah it'll be fun it's gonna be fun it's gonna be really cool
0: uh i'm super looking forward to it. if i if i can i would love to come out there and check that out because it sounds of really more
1: cool. than more than welcome
0: so um i think that just about covers everything i had for you and i really appreciate you uh you know giving time for this i know you, i'm sure you're busy like everybody else. So really appreciate (laughs) you giving the time to do this.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for, you know, I appreciate you reaching out. It's always flattering to come and talk to people. I I always enjoy that. So cool.
0: Um, Well, as you said before, um, you know, projectblackpython.org. Is that the best place to learn more about the, about the Bolin's Python and um, about your research and the project for that?
1: yeah um i also have a really great uh facebook group uh that i put together with a lot of keepers from all over the world everybody's sharing info and updates and all that too and i can go ahead and i can send you the link of that after we're done doing the interview so you can you know post it up if you want um and uh but yeah i mean and, and then you know just if you want to talk snakes bolens you find me online i'm always up for talking about bolens
0: <laughs> true i mean i was definitely like that weird guy that went hey i'm some random guy from the internet. Do you
1: want oh, to no, chat? You're <laughs> you're, yeah, right. You're you're fine, man. I it, like I said, it's flattering to me, and I, I'm, I'm like one of the hum- most humble people you'll ever meet. So it's I always enjoy it. So it's nice.
0: Well, it was really great to talk to you too. So um, <laughs> hopefully, uh, you know, everything goes for you. You can make it out to West Papo again next year. The awesome yeah. facility opening up, and everything goes well for kind of everybody coming in the following year, and everything. Yeah, no, we
1: it. We need something positive to look forward to.
0: Yeah. So, well, thank you very much. And uh, thank you for tuning in, everybody. And we will check you next time.
1: Thank you so much. Be safe. Right.
0: (laughs)